0: First Kings 16, we're gonna make quite a bit of progress and finish up kind of a tedious section. Thankfully, we're going to enter a, an easier section with more narrative coming up here uh, very shortly. So First Kings, we'll pick up at verse uh, 21. You put your finger there. Now, Heavenly Father, we always wanna ask your blessing. We ask you, Lord, to open the eyes of our understanding that we could make sense of your wonderful word and let it speak to the areas that uh, will give us insight and wisdom according to uh, our needs, Lord, tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so First Kings, of course, is about kings, right? From Solomon's time all the way, First Kings deals with Solomon to Ahab in the north, and Jehoshaphat in the south. Now here's the chart here, the list of the kings. And we'll get caught up here. So when we last heard good king, mostly good, Asa, was reigning in the south in Judah. He reigns for 41 years. While he's on the throne in the south as a good king, mostly good, uh, the north goes through, burns through seven Kings, six or seven kings in that time. And uh, what we've been doing is going down the list. We find ourselves uh, down at Omri, but let me just back up for you. Um, So follow down the list with me. Nadab rules for two years. And then Bashar, if you're watching here, we're right up here. Then Bashar uh, killed him and took the throne for 24 years, and then Elah, underneath him, his son uh, replaced him for two years until Zimri killed him and took the throne. Do you remember for how long? Seven Seven days, very good, he set a new record. Uh, he (laughs) He was voted out after the army heard that he had conspired to kill Elah. They didn't like that, so they voted him out. Seven days later, they surrounded him. They elected Omri to replace him, and then, Zimri went back into the citadel and lit the palace on fire. He was surrounded. He was the dude who, who reigned for seven days. He lit the palace on fire with himself in it uh, with the attitude of, if I can't live in the palace, then nobody will. Uh, but that wasn't the case because Omri now, now we're on Omri. We've only got to get down to Ahab. We're not going down to, to Ahaziah yet, but just down to Ahab uh, tonight. And so Omri is where we pick up. Uh, we are going to meet Ahab tonight. And Ahab is famous mostly because he married Jezebel. And uh, boy, the rest of the chapter, once we, once we get done with a couple more paragraphs about Omri, and then we'll get introduced to Ahab, and then it's Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah the whole way to the end of 1 Kings, which is about five more chapters. So it's really the rest of the book of 1 Kings is about uh, Ahab and Jezebel and their nasty exploits and the powerful ministry of Elijah, who we'll meet tonight. Yeah, Ahab and Jezebel, very sad. Uh, a match made in hell, really. I mean, when, I mean, you know where they met, edisharmony.com. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Wait till <laughs> you see that. Oh, you're in a good mood tonight. I'm happy. So like we said, King, king uh, Zimri, one of the former officers, right? he conspires to get to the throne, he kills the king, the army's not happy, as I just mentioned, they vote him out, They surround the palace, Zimri decides uh, if he can't live there, no one can, they torch, he torches the place, and it's now time for King Omri to kinda go through the ashes and reign, First Kings 16, verse 21. Then the people of Israel were split into two factions. Half supported Tibni, son of Ganath for king, and the other half supported Omri. But Omri's followers proved stronger than those of Tibni, son of Ganath. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. <laughs> we'll talk about that, yeah. We, we, we can put the, the pieces together. We pretty much know what happened there. Uh, verse Twenty-three, in the thirty-first year of King Asa, so we got Asa still in the south. Now, in the thirty-first year, uh, as king of Judah, Omri becomes king of Israel, and he reigned twelve years, six of them in Tirzah. Uh, he he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer uh, for two talents of silver, and built a city on the hill, calling it Samaria. There you have the origins of Samaria after Shemer, the name of the former owner of the hill. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit, so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. As for the other events of Omri's reign, what he did... And the things he achieved, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And Ahab, his son, succeeded him as king. Let's pause there. And uh, point number one would be uh, Omri's reign. Omri's reign. Now, the Lord told us, uh, Luke 11, verse 17, any kingdom divided against itself uh, will be ruined. A house uh, divided against itself will fall. And so Israel is really just set up for disaster after disaster. Nothing good is coming from their split. So we have the, the map on the screen here now of The divide, so there's really, if you're taking notes, you'd write double division, because the nation is already divided between north and south. The north, as we've been talking about it, retained the name Israel, and the south is the new nation of Judah. But now in the north, the scripture says that Israel has yet subdivided again so the northern tribes, uh, half of them are for Omri and half of them are for another commander. Omri was a commander and this other commander's name is Tibni. All right, so uh, Omri's supporters are stronger, and presumably in the battle to wrestle for uh, kingship, uh, Tibney dies in that battle, and so he wasn't necessarily assassinated, and so that's why there's a softer, indirect uh, description of his death. In the squirmish, uh, to uh, dominate and to find out who was gonna be king, Tibney dies, and so Omri is gonna reign for 12 years. Uh, <laughs> You know, after reading all the bloodshed, the chaos, all the murder, um, and you just see the house of division, the fruit of selfish ambition and disobedience to God is sort of this implosion this chaos, so what, what, what I'm getting at is I ask myself, what has caused the fall of these seven kings and the uh, 12 or 13 to come? They're all evil, they all cause uh, problems with Israel and disasters with the Lord and disobedience. Um, be sure of this, anyone with no regard for God and his commands, uh, when they're all about themselves, they'll always bring the whirlwind of chaos and division. So uh, if we were to psychoanalyze these kings as to what the problem is, James 3, uh, verse 16, we have a slide for that. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder or chaos, the word there, and every evil practice. So we've been seeing all this chaos now with all these kings, and Omri's no exception. He's the fourth uh, dynasty now uh, in the north. And kings and queens have just been taking this path of, of selfish ambition, which causes every evil practice and chaos and bloodshed and murder and all such lawlessness. Where do these kings learn these things? Well, I'm glad you asked that, because I have a slide here. We teach that lawlessness in our hearts and uh, in our kids' hearts. So we have a little picture of a Disney character here. Now, let let me explain why I have Queen Elsa from the latest animated movie on the screen. Uh, Let me tell you the plot. Uh, Queen Elsa has a secret that she's been keeping, it's been brewing and growing inside of her and she can't tell anybody who she truly is because the world will reject her uh, because the world just doesn't understand. Uh, She has uh, just a uniqueness about her and the world just tells her keep it to yourself but she's having trouble uh, not being herself and, and, and she needs to express that and, and uh, so she's been trying to suppress this power, uh, uh, but she can't do it any longer. So she, she's exposed and she comes out for who she is. And here's the song she sings as the hero, all right? It says, let it go, let it go. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong. No rules for me, I'm free. Now little girls and little boys are singing this song. She's a hero. She's had this brewing inside her life for years and everybody's been telling her no, 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 but she's gotten to the point where she just has to express it because it's all about her. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free then she is free to be bound and enslaved because the one who sings this song is the lawless one, the Antichrist. The Antichrist sings, let it go, let it go. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. He's empowered by the evil one. And so we teach our kids to sing these songs. And uh, what, what song did Jesus teach us to sing? He taught us, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow. And so we deny ourselves when... Uh, uh, with anything that's inconsistent with the word or will of God we pick up the cross the way to deny ourselves is to put it to death and then to follow him in lordship and obedience in fact Jesus song would be hold it back keep it in let it die if it's sin right don't you think that's the way it is that's the way it is or uh, you can sing let it go let it go, just let it go. Like Jeroboam sang, Nadab sang, let it go, let it go. Uh, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Amri, uh, Ahab, let it go. Stop suppressing. Be free, you see? And so Amri has a couple claims uh, to fame here. Number one, he's worst in show. All right, so you've heard of best in show. He's worst in show. He's the worst sinner thus far in the six kings that are on the list. He's the worst. Can you imagine the Lord saying to you on that day, uh, there were sinners and then there was you. <laughs> uh, you took sinning and disobedience to a whole other level, you know, and that's what he was going to say if he did not repent. He's going to hear that. Now, the second thing Armory's famous for is being the founder of Samaria. So Israel, the north, needs a new capital. They, they don't know Jerusalem anymore, so they find a hill that's suitable. It's always on a hill. And they build a st- strategic city, and he names it Samaria after the guy he purchased it from. And eventually, the Jews are going to build a temple up there. And... Um, this is, of course, the origin of the animosity between Jews and Samaritans uh, of John chapter 4, Samaria, woman at the well, fame. And so uh, we're going to move on now and meet King Ahab, who also sings the song, Let It Go, Let It Go. Just be who you are. All right. Uh, verse 29. In the 30th, 38th year, of, of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, so it's Omri's son, Ahab, becomes king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So there goes dad's trophy right out the window because his boy outdoes even him. So he's not, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, that's modern day uh, Lebanon, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up, an altar for Baal, and a lot of people pronounce it Baal, but it should be Baal, in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So Ahab's, um, during Ahab's time, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho He laid its foundation at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, Segub. Segub. You know what? Ladies, are you looking for a baby name? Uh, Keep reading. In accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. All right, so pause there. We've got Omri's reign, and now we've got Ahab's sin, all right? And so, uh, introducing King Ahab, now he's, I guess, uh, number seven during um, Asa's reign in the South. So, leaving a legacy. Now, he's credited now with being the very worst in the rebellion and disobedience and sin and idolatry. So, uh, I, I like how the scripture says that he followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam. Well, Jeroboam is many, you know, six kings ago. Now little did Jeroboam know that his choices, the way that he rebelled, was going to uh, cause uh, many to take a tangent to follow in his footsteps. uh, Six different uh, dynasties, as it were. Uh, And I think part of the damage that is done as a result of these uh, kings in front, uh, who follow Jeroboam can be credited back to Jeroboam's account. Now, uh, some of our deeds keep living on. See, uh, whether they're good or bad, uh, we set into motion patterns of obedience and blessing for those to follow, or patterns of defiance and 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 curses. And our choices really can send future generations either into blessing or into hardship, and um, back in the 90s, there was a song by Steve Green, Uh, um, it goes, uh, the title is Find Us Faithful, let me read you a verse in the chorus, all right? After all our hopes and dreams have come and gone, and our children sift through all we've left behind, may the clues that they discover, and the memories they uncover, become the light that leads them to the road we each must find. May all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe and the lives we live inspire them to obey. It's wonderful to be able to know that you know as i deny myself and pick up my cross and follow the lord that i'm leaving a legacy for somebody i'm impacting somebody and it's going to make it more easy for somebody to follow the lord and be and be obedient and be blessed now why was uh, ahab so easy well it's listed right there uh, number 1 that's the wrong scriptures thank you though thanks why so evil? Number one, he had a a verse 31 casual attitude towards sinning. So the scripture says, hey, you know, he didn't, he saw it as a trivial thing to sin. So if you want to be as evil as King Ahab, see sin as just trivial. That's no big deal. All right. Uh, next he, he, and then the scriptures say, even in the Hebrew, it's more pronounced. He even married Jezebel. All right, so she was already famous as just the status symbol for uh, being evil. She loved Baal. She was uh, the princess of Baal worship, and um, she's gonna be the one who establishes Baal worship in Israel. Uh, uh, Now, she is the king of Sidon's daughter, and um, as I said, um, that's Lebanon, and they probably got married because of a, to form a treaty or an alliance. So in verse 33, he makes an Asherah pole that's listed as one of the reasons also. So he's given over to sexual immorality. An Asherah pole is a sign that just says sexual immorality here. It's kind of like a sign that says, uh, this is a house of prostitution. Uh, So come in and worship. It was a worship to go into a house of prostitution. Um, and so that was one of the reasons he was worse than any other. And and finally, it says in verse 34, very interesting, he tested God, uh, he ordered Jericho to be rebuilt despite God's warning. Now that's verse 34. In Joshua 6, Joshua, uh, after Jericho was defeated, uh, he said, uh, Verse 26, at that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild the city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So Ahab orders Hiel to rebuild Jericho, just tempting the Lord. It was a very well-known thing. Jericho lay in ruins for many, many years. And everybody knew why. There was a curse. God said, I want this to always stand as a memorial of, of what it means to defy the living God. Do not rebuild it. Because if you do, it'll cost you your firstborn and your youngest. And so he tempts the Lord, and this dude named Kiel goes out and builds, rebuilds it, and what happens? His firstborn and his youngest Die. Now commentators say it's probably because they he dedicated them to these foreign gods like Baal. They used to do that when they build a city, they would dedicate their children and throw their children into the fire or 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 bury them in the foundation. Um, As that's that that's why God is saying they provoked me. They did these things, and and it just provoked me. And he came down with an appropriate response to that kind of behavior. So what a gracious warning to Ahab. Uh, He's saying, listen, Ahab, you can't ignore my word and not pay a dear price. You directed Hiel to rebuild Jericho. Guess what? He lost two sons. Uh, Listen up and take this warning to, to heart. Ahab, does he listen? no. No, God has to deal with this guy for five chapters and it's, it's ugly, all right? So here, here's the problem with Ahab, slide seven here. Proverbs 28 and verse 14. Blessed is the one who always uh, trembles before God, but whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. Trivial, remember, trivial. Sinning like Jeroboam's, trivial. He has no uh, fear of the Lord. Proverbs twenty nine one: A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy, and that's exactly what happens to him. The Lord is so patient even with Ahab; He comes to him over and over again, and we'll see, we'll see that in many different ways. But He really can't; um, He really doesn't get it. So, chapter seventeen. Uh, verses one through six. It's time to change the channel. We made it through all the tedious parts and now we've got narrative and it's very dramatic and it's a lot of fun. So I'm glad you made it this far with me. (laughs) Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. Now that's a place I don't want to be from either. I don't want to be named. uh, What was it? I want to look back and find his name. Sagub (laughs) who are you my name's Sagub where are you from Tishbe (laughs) all right oh as the Lord okay so Elijah goes to Ahab the wickedest king on earth all right and he says as the Lord the God of Israel lives whom I serve there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here. (laughs) I love that. He delivers the line and then the Lord goes, now run. (laughs) Turn eastward and hide in the Kirith ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith ravine, east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. All right. So number one was Omni's reign. Number two, Ahab's sin. And now three, Elijah's call. Now, Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. And we're going to see a big standoff between Elijah and the living God and Ahab and the prophets of Baal and the fake God. And even right from his name, his name lets you know what's going to happen. Uh, Yahweh is my God. <laughs> Baal is your go- your so-called, so-called God. So time for a little light to shine in a very dark day for God's people. So... Uh, Elijah's gonna come and bring some revival and some rebuke to some really wicked people. So number one, God wants his people back. So he's the God who can turn up the heat or he can turn off the water. You know, he is the owner, landlord of the place. Uh, So Deuteronomy 11, it says, hey, if you walk with me, I'm gonna send rains, you know, but if you're going to pray to some fake uh, Baal God who they call the fertility God, so they went and did their sexual immorality and they offered sacrifices for rain to Baal. So God sends his man to the king and says, uh, listen, uh, I don't appreciate you going to Baal for the rain. So just so you know, it's not going to rain here for a few years. Unless, of course, I say it can rain. Now, wow, that's, that's pretty bold. Now, uh, when the money dries up, why the drought? Well, when the money dries up, when the friends fall away, when the good times are over, it's time to look up. And it was that way, an ache of hunger for the prodigal, who lost all of the money that dad gave him, and the good times were over, no one gave him anything, and all his friends left him, and he was so hungry, he was feeding the pigs slop, and he wished that he could eat that food. And then he finally realized, you know what? I'm going to go back to dad's house. And that same ache in drought is what brings today's prodigals back to the father's house. Uh, So God has just the guy, Elijah. I mean, we've met Elijah. Here he is, you know, he's a, he's, he's quite a character. He's a man's man. I just picture, I mean, he's a prototype of John the Baptist, just hairy and scary All right. And he's just, he's a madman for God. He just is like fire in the eyes. And he's just no nonsense guy, uh, blazed with devotion, lit up in his face, stern character and countenance. And there's no one more bold for God in the Bible, I don't think. And no one who does more miracles that are more dramatic. I mean, walking into the king and say, by the way, it's not going to rain for a few years, unless I say so. wow, uh, that's pretty bold, you know? And so uh, uh, now, lest we put Elijah on a pedestal. James chapter five, verse 17. James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, wants us to know something. Elijah was just a human being. You're gonna gonna see stuff, it's like, how can you, that's a miracle of miracles. But Elijah was a human being just like you and me. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. There it is in the New Testament. But what's the point of putting it there? He's calling everybody to pray. That's the famous verse where it says uh, the the diligent prayer of the righteous uh, availeth much in the King James, but produces, it works, right? So what's the scripture saying? Do not put... Bible heroes on the pedestal as a way to excuse yourself from the blessings of God and the devotion of God that you, you could see a lot of power in your life as well. So don't just, just write off these kinds of guys as, well, that's Elijah. That's what the verse is meant to say, meant to mean there. And so Elijah comes in and declares war on King Ahab. Uh, He says, you know, if you don't mind me using the uh, the word punk, you know, he comes into King King and he says, punk, listen, I serve the living God and and opposed to your fake God. So just so you know, there'll be no rain until I say so. Not a drop, no dew in the morning, bone desert, sand in your mouth, kind of dry for the next few years, except at my word. And when you want to talk, you just come find me. That he slips out the back because God says, now run. (laughs) (laughs) So he has to get out of town um, because he's made Ahab very, very angry. And then uh, (laughs) then, at work two, uh, the Lord says, turn east, go all the way down, keep going, you'll cross the river, you'll see a nice ravine, a special hiding place I have for you, a babbling brook. And then he says, I hooked you up with a restaurant meal delivery service. It's called crows on the go. (laughs) Breakfast and dinner provided, lunch, you're on your own. All right, so spiritual applications for us, yes. First of all, often directions in life from God come to us one at a time. Don't be looking for your map quest for your entire life for the next 10 years, all printed out neatly. It's not gonna happen. All right. So he says, Elijah, I want you to give a message. I'm not telling you anything where you're going to go hide out until you go do the message. Go do this. Take care of that. Check. Okay. Now I'm going to tell you one at a time. Uh, go down the eastern road. You're going to find this place. Now, now he's going to be at the brook for a while, but the brook is going to uh, dry up, and then he's got to got to send him somewhere else to the widow, right? But he doesn't get that information until the brook dries up, and then you, you see that that's just. He's teaching Elijah something. And it's not until he learns it and implements it that he can move forward and God could give him the revelation he needs to move forward. And so I just see this very important to obey the first prompt and the next will follow. Hesitate with the first causes a delay with the second. Right? Right? I think that makes sense. So when the progress and the prompts from God seem slow in coming in your life, make sure it's not because you're slow in complying with what's already revealed. Do and learn what it is God has for you in this moment, and then the next step will come. Amen? Amen. I know, I didn't want to hear that either, but it's the truth. (laughs) All right, we just want, I know, I know, I feel you. All right, deepening Elijah's uh, sense of dependence of God is what's going on here. There's some, uh, some really good things that are happening during this drought. Growing Elijah's trust in God's faithfulness, faithfulness to provide uh, during those kinds of times, developing Elijah's intimacy with God in the solitude, They're teaching Elijah about living by the spirit of the law, not being so legalistic. How is that? Well, you know, ravens are unclean. So the raven is going to bring in its unclean mouth the food that a Jewish prophet must eat to survive. So he's growing him, he's maturing him, he's teaching him wisdom, he's teaching him grace, he's teaching him mercy, uh, all there during the drought. Now, a big chunk here, seven through 16. Sometime later, the brook dries up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went there. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little drink in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have, And bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. All right, so we have Omri's reign, Ahab's sin, Elijah's call, and the widow's test. The widow's test. Now, first of all, I I, I think it must have been hard for Elijah to see the brook drying up, you know, his life-saving brook with no warning Lord, I I thought you told me the the brook would be there and I'm getting thirsty and the Lord is saying, listen, trust me, trust me, trust me because the will of God will never lead us where the grace of God can't keep us or feed us. Now, notice Elijah, does it pray for rain yet? Even though the brook is drying up and he needs rain to survive he knows God needs to finish his work, and I'm not gonna pray for rain just because I need the rain. So I think that's uh, very noble. So after a year or so, he's off to find this Gentile widow uh, who he's gonna live with for two years, just so you know, and from um, Jezebel's hometown. So that's very interesting, because I think it's kind of an in-your-face gesture, uh, really, to send him to enemy territory. Where's the last place Ahab and, and Jezebel are going to look for him in her hometown? And kind of just uh, doing, uh, providing and doing the work of God right under the enemy's nose right there in Baal land. And so um, Jesus mentions this little episode in Luke chapter 4. We have it here. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that they were, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Now, do you notice that the New Testament is always confirming the Old Testament? You see, so you see James talking about the incident we just read and we hear Jesus talking about the incident as well. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath into the region of Sidon. And he said that just to say God plays no favorites, you see. And so he knew that this woman had faith in him. And here's all of Israel, all of God's people, close-hearted to the Lord, worshiping Baal. There's only 7,000 Jews in northern Israel who are steady with the Lord. The rest of all those thousands have gone over to Baal. And so the Lord just bypasses them. They've got a closed heart. And he finds this widow who he's going to work into the fabric of this story. And so in obedience to God's word here, the test is serve someone else who's in need. Even though your resources are limited and your own situation is dire, express your faith in God by putting someone else first. And then you will see the miraculous flow of provision from God. So Elijah says to the old woman, can I have a drink of water? Verse uh, 10. And she says, okay, because she goes to get it. And then he says, while you're at it, could you bring me a piece of bread? too?" <laughs> verse 11. So the widow says, verse 12, not going to lie, but I'm down to the last bag of flour. Me and my boy are going to eat what's left. And then we've just sort of uh, resolved, uh, resigned ourselves to the fact that we're going to die soon because that's all I have. So Elijah says, perfect. Listen, in uh, verse 13, show your faith in the Lord. Use the last bit of provision that you wanted for you and your boy and serve somebody else and you'll never run dry does that ever rub against our natural human inclination? A monumental spiritual principle, not popular, but true. Cast your bread upon the waters and in time, uh, let me see, cast your bread upon the waters uh, for after many days, you'll find it again. So here's the principle in God's word. As you give, it's it's an investment in self always. When you give, and the motivation to bless God, to obey him, to give. You, there's a spiritual principle that always works. It's as if, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1. It's as if you've tossed it out on the sea, and you know what? The waves come in, and it brings it back to you. You will never uh, God will never be a debtor to you. And so as you give as unto the Lord, it, every time you just, I picture this all the time, I've I've thrown it out there on the sea. And God says, it's just a matter of time before it comes back. But Jesus says in Luke chapter six, given will be given to you. It'll be more than you have given. Packed down, pressed together, uh, poured in and overflowing the sack of grain is his metaphor there. And that's Luke chapter six and verse 38. Uh, Proverbs eleven twenty-five. I quote it all the time. He who refreshes others, he himself shall be refreshed. It's the way. It's the way to get. It's the God's upside down kingdom. To, to live, you die. To, to receive, you give. It just the, to go up, you go down in humility, right? Because whoever exalts himself is... Humbled, and whoever humbles themselves uh, is lifted up, and so it's this reverse sense. But we we can appreciate all the other ones, but it's the giving one that we just don't uh, believe. It's the hardest one to believe that if I let it go, that it'll come back. Uh, as God has promised. And so the promise is fulfilled. So she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her son continued to eat from the supply of flour and oil for many days, for no matter how much they used, there was always enough left in the containers just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Now, can you imagine the excitement of every day, every time you want to go to get the meal fixed? And she (laughs) opens it up, and she's like... Again, There it is again. God doesn't, and here's the other thing. He didn't say, you know what? Go look in the back room. You'll see a ton of green just dumped in there. No, 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 no. Day by day, trusting by trusting, prayer by prayer, waiting upon waiting. How about today? There it is again. Faithfulness again. Every single day, where is it coming from? I thought he used this. Yeah, God said, thank you for obeying because now I'm gonna bless you and provide uh, for your needs. That's so great. Now, who hasn't been there in times of need where you're giving out to the Lord? It's so precious, those going to the jar and seeing how God miraculously uh, gives you a surprise check. I mean, these surprise check Christian stories, I've heard so many of them. I've had them myself. You know, I remember down at seminary, we were so limited. I was working full time. We had two little babies. We lived in this little tiny shack behind some guy's house. It was just amazing how God provided for us. We always went to the church. There was always something Always, we always paid our bills. We always made it in time. Those days are so wonderful. And You look back and just say, God, you are so faithful. It's just so wonderful. I remember in that house, just feeling like, I, I just need, I need a thousand dollars. That should have been a million dollars back then. I just need a thousand dollars. I've got rent, and I've got this, and I've got that. And, ugh, and I had applied for unemployment when we moved down to Pasadena to go to Fuller Seminary. Uh, somebody made us do it for another application. I had already said, I'm not eligible for unemployment. Uh, but they said, you have to fill out the form to get on Medi-Cal so we could have uh, Zachary at the hospital. You know, So Barbara was pregnant with Zachary. You probably figured that last part out. <laughs> A few months go by. I'm in need. I open an envelope. I say, Lord, just joking. It'd be really nice if there was a whole bunch of money in here. <laughs> I open it up. It's all the back checks for unemployment that I was eligible for. I thought I was not. So I filled it out. The paperwork went through. And they, all of these checks, it's like backdated, 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 backdated. Oh, the jar. Going to the jar. It's just an amazing thing. Just continue to do God's will, to give. And you know who the jar is? Come on. The jar is us. We are the vessel. As we pour out our lives, the Holy Spirit is pouring in and his grace is sufficient. And as we give out and as we serve and as we minister and we feel depleted, in comes another wave of the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's just the Christian life and so many different Uh, applications here just beautiful let's finish up we'll be done 17 through the end here sometime later the son of the woman who owned the house became ill he grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing she said to Elijah what do you have against me man of God did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son wow Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Well, you know, the bottomless pantry is one thing, but life from the dead is totally another, right? <laughs> so we've got a little picture, an artist's rendering from the mid Middle Ages. They're just beautiful. Um, so number five, we we've seen the widow's tested. Now the widow's son. All right. Well, in grief and in confusion, you get a lot of questions when tragedy strikes, and so you start to play the blame game. So that's what we see first here, right? So the widow, first of all, who does she blame? She blames herself, right? She feels guilty for past sins, and obviously the boy dies, and she has a guilty conscience about something. And she says, surely it's because of my sins. So she blames herself first, and it's very common. When we have tragedy, uh, that we think uh, it, God is punishing us for something, uh, I hear it all the time. Um, John chapter nine, uh, the disciples saw the man who was born blind by the road, and he said, "Hey," they said, "Hey, Rabbi, who has sinned, the man or his parents? Why? Why is God punishing this person?" And the Lord said, "You know." Uh, Sometimes God is just at work for his own glory and purposes. Uh, That's not really how it works. Um, In fact, he's got something wonderful planned here, and he was for the glory of God. And so this is the case with this young boy who dies, but she's got this guilty conscience, and she thinks God is ready to punish her. Now, if you're always thinking God is punishing you every time you stub your toe or lose your wallet or get a flat tire that you need to rework your theology. (laughs) How many of you, never mind. (laughs) Okay, but why blame Elijah? So she's blaming herself. But why are you going to point your finger at the man of God and say, why'd you come here to kill my boy? She's in pain. He's a man of God. He's mature. He knows he's not going to take it personally. But she's thinking he's a man of God and perhaps because of the conviction of having Elijah living in your house every time you see him, you know, you start to think about maybe where you're falling short, and then the boy dies, and then why didn't you stop it, or are you a sign that God is punishing me? See, so she connects Elijah to it as well and blames him. I really like that Elijah doesn't get his feathers all in a ruffle. What what are you blaming me for, lady? Would I come here and kill your son? He doesn't slam the door, get his feelers hurt, you know, leaves, sulking, you know, it's the last time I help you out, you know. <laughs> Instead, he says, let me help fix the problem, not make it worse. Husbands and, and helpers and pastors and fathers and mothers and whoever else is listening to me. Let me help fix the problem, not make it worse by taking it personally. A man of God, a woman of God can see past the insult to the brokenness, to the grief that's causing it and not take it personally. So uh, uh, now it's Elijah's turn to blame somebody. Who does he blame? God. He blame. of course you blame God. So, well, God can take it, you know, he's heard it all. So he's a big God, so he understands us humans. I don't recommend you blame him for stuff. But, um, so she's blamed him, so he's gonna follow suit. So what does he say, paraphrase, just be patient with me. Oh God, he says, seriously, Lord, come on. Why'd you go and kill the boy? Now, verse 20, look at what it says. Have you brought tragedy and caused the boy to die? That's a little softer, but he is blaming God. You caused the boy to die. Now, here's Elijah's thinking, it might be yours too. God is in charge of life and death. God could have prevented it. Therefore, God is responsible for doing it. I don't think so. I don't think it's that easy. Now, this is something that we're never going to solve tonight. You know, but while God ultimately is sovereign and allows and disallows as he sees fit, uh, but life's incidents are infinitely more complicated than just simply saying God did this or God caused that. The Lord is working in everything, but whether or not he did it remains much a mystery. Now, some things we know he doesn't do. I'm sorry, he's not behind anything evil. Uh, he, anything sinful, yeah, and God does not tempt us. So there are some things that we know, oh, you cannot say God did that, all right? Um, I like what one writer said. He said, when tragedy strikes, it's more helpful to look for comfort than answers, to look for the strength to go forward than the strength to understand everything, right? I like that, so the prayer for help is really nice. The request there, oh Lord my God, let the boy's spirit return. You know, he could have just said that. He didn't have to just say, hey, you know, why'd you cause the boy to die? Just ask for help, you know? And so he does. God hears his cry. The warmth comes back. And you know, I don't know. He's something to do with transferring the life of his body to the, to the body of the corpse. But uh, whatever's going on there, uh, the Lord answers the prayer. Then oh, what a tender picture. He picks him up, carries him down the steps, and, and gives him back to his mother. Here's your boy. He's alive. Now that should ring a bell. Luke chapter 7, the widow of Nain, her only boy, a widow's son. And Jesus touches the coffin and says, I say to you, young man, arise. And he sits up. Everybody else falls over, but (laughs) he sits up. And he takes him and he gives him back to his mother, Just a beautiful picture here of what Christ has come to do to bring us life from the dead and a reminder. One writer said, let us always be mindful, dear believing parents of spiritually dead children that God can breathe back life into them and delights to carry them in his arms back home and tenderly give them back to their grieving moms and dads. Keep believing instead of blaming. It's more helpful. Amen. Amen. I've got five closing sentences, reflections, and they all rhyme. Surprise. (laughs) Number one. Omri's rain, what a pain. When we let it go instead of holding it back. Number two. Ahab's sin, nobody wins when we live for self and disregard God. Number three, Elijah's call, God takes care of us all even when we're in drought. The widow's test, to give is best. And when we do, that's when we receive. And finally, the widow's son Christ has won and made a way for us to have life from the dead. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love and these just wonderful truths that speak to us, encourage us, challenge us, uh, straighten us out, give us comfort. We love you, Lord. We pray for the ability to apply these truths in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. Out of all of that tonight, a lot of different topics because we went through a lot. The thing that just kind of sticking with me is the thought of giving. Just giving and letting the Lord bless as we pour out our lives. and It doesn't necessarily mean giving uh, of our resources, but but doing for others first and watching how God will come in and refresh us. Let me just give you a story about a, a, a famous woman at Calvary Chapel Petaluma that uh, many, many years ago, because I, I call her famous because I always tell the story. Nobody knows her, so don't try to figure out who it was. Somebody came up to me, this woman, and she said, after the service, 22 people have passed me and that one person said hello to me and I was like 23rd right and I was like with that kind of attitude you know I'm going to be the 23rd because she radiated uh, don't talk to me the very thing she wanted so she's in service and she's saying she's counting everybody needs to come and talk to me And then I'm going to go out and I'm going to slander everybody and I'm going to say, oh, that church is so unfriendly. 23 people, including the pastor. Sorry. (laughs) One of the pastors. That is not the way to be blessed. The way to be blessed is, can I touch 23 people? Can I greet 23 people? Can I pray for 23 people? Can I greet them and make them feel warm and comfortable because I'm an other-centered person? I pour out, and God gives in. But when you're all about yourself, there's no room. There's no room because you're keeping everything. You're so afraid, oh, I can't give, and I can't do this, and I can't encourage, and I can't think about somebody else. And there's no room to get in there. Give out, be about others. You'll be so much healthier, so much happier, so much at peace when you're other-centered. That's what Jesus taught us. The servant of all is the most blessed. Amen. Thank you for listening to my second sermon. I appreciate that. And if I don't pray now, there'll be a third. So. Heavenly Father, thank you. We just need help. We are so self-centered. God, please save us, heal us, change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Prayer at the cross, or we'll see you next Sunday. God bless you. And we have umbrella ministry. So folks, guys, young men, out there, get out there with umbrellas and help these people. Thank you. Amen.